Amen. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to read verses 5, 6, and 7. And then we'll pick up back at verse 5. We'll tag it with a little bit of a lecture and, 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 and rule, grammatical rule. And then we'll plumb into it. Verse, four, verse 5 says, Therefore, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, in order that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, and that no one of you become puffed up for one against another. For who maketh you to differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, why do you glory as if you have not received it? That's where we're going to stop, because when he moves away from these Socratic, uh, these are Socratic queries. These are interrogative questions that he's raising and he wants them to answer them for himself. As we move away from that, we'll move into verse eight, which is a very uh, interesting set of arguments that he's going to make from experience with them. And we'll pick that up on, on Tuesday because it's going to kind of be a, a new way of approaching uh, the father, spiritual father of the Corinthians. And his concern that they are failing to realize that a large part of the reason for who they are is who he is. That's the way we've been working it through. A large part of the reason for which the Corinthians are even on the map of the biblical and redemptive history is because of the labors of the Apostle Paul. He will say in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, over in verse, um, verse uh, 14, he's, uh, verse 15, he says, For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. Patir is the Greek term. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. That's huge in terms of a claim. And if it's true, it means something at the level of how the proclamation of biblical truth plays an essential, non-negotiable role in men and women coming to know Jesus in a saving way. And the instrument in relationship to the objects is something that we have to hold in honor and in reverence. This is what Paul is inferring here. Can you imagine how rich the Corinthians are? This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 around verse 4 and 5 says. You have been enriched. That's the language that's used. Uh, uh, pleroma, uh, pluo is our root word. Pleroma means God has poured out on the Corinthians so many riches. And one of the set of riches that the Corinthians have, obviously, um, is the idea that Paul said that they have thousands of teachers. Look at it again in verse 15. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ. Now, that is by admission a exaggeration. That's an inflamed term. But it does indicate the wealth of the Corinthians around the kind of teachers that are there. There are some communities that are so poor that they don't even have a teacher. 
There are some biblical communities throughout history that have had evangelists come through, preach the gospel, people get saved, and they were never able to acquire a pastor to oversee them. There are some communities where one pastor has to pastor several different communities of churches. These were in the uh, early days of the uh, post-Reformation period called circuit pastors. Circuit pastors are the pastors who would go to preach to two families here and then go up a mile or two away, preach to two or three more families, and then down yonder a mile or two away or three or four or five, preach to four or five families. This was John Wesley. This was his brother as well, and this was many. This is something that is still kind of done in many of our African cultures. I want you to know that. So what, what we would describe in terms of the Corinthians are super wealthy on a pleroma, uh, pleroma level because they have many teachers to argue over. Now, that last point was facetious because you shouldn't be arguing over teachers, If all of those teachers are faithful men of God, they shouldn't be argued. They should be honored. And there may be a hierarchy of leadership there, but the leadership should never be pitted against each other. And and so when Paul says here, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, not one of them occupies the position that I do. And why I'm sharing that with you is that's that's where we're going, where Paul is going to be even more candid about the reason for which the Corinthians ought to be giving him honor. All right, let's go back to our text. Verse uh, verse six of first Corinthians chapter four, uh, uh, verse uh, verse five. I'm sorry. Verse five. We're at this concept of judgment, are we not? And we've been talking about judgment for a while. And I don't want to do a super long run into the issue of judgment. But as you and I talked about the last two or three weeks, what Paul plainly stated in a sort of categorical way is when it comes to the judgment of the Corinthians against him, he called their judgment what? Small. What was the Greek term? Micro. In other words, what Paul said to them was, your assessment of me is very small to me. In other words, I do not allow your judging me to shape me or change me or confine me or or hold me down. And what I shared with you about that kind of assessment is that when you and I have the ability to be rooted in God and rooted in Christ and clear on who we are and clear on our calling. We don't worry much about what other people think about us. Now, this is not to be sociopathically um, insensitive or non-caring. It is to establish a legitimate proportion of significance between human judgment objectively on their part towards you and me in that human judgment is always inclined to fallibility. This is something you need to know. I just want to drive it home because, you know, I have to do that when we start class because we don't remember what we were dealing with last week. A lot of that is the toxins in the air and your food. I'm sure that Um, we just don't remember it. And so I have to stir up your minds, your pure minds to bring you back to remembrance. The reason why Paul is saying now, you guys, I love you to death. I'm your spiritual father and your judgment matters, but it really only matters a little bit. It's not going to matter so much that I'm going to submit to it and be overthrown as some of you want me to be overthrown. And again, in a context uh, of the parent and child relationship, which we're using as a metaphor, Paul let us do that. 
The children do not have authority over the parents. The parents have authority over the children. In about a year, I'll go to jail for that. And many of us others as well, if this neo-Marxist system has its way, right? But the point being is that what Paul was saying to them is not that he doesn't care about them or that he loves, doesn't love them, but that they don't actually have the criterion in themselves to be able to make an accurate judgment over against Paul. That was so cri- critically clear. And it's important for you and I to be able to know when a person is limited by two things. They're limited objectively in terms of their knowledge of you. Okay, now, this is important for you to be able to help defend yourself against accusation because accusation is the way humanity fail. The devil works by accusation. He accused God and humanity failed because Eve bought it. And then Adam bought it. So you and I have to understand that the goal of the enemy is to accuse you and his accusations is to try to find the chink in your armor, to try to find the missing link, to try to find the gap between your uh, your panoply so he can spear you with accusations and wound you. Am I making sense? And we know our culture has been wounded. Our nation has been wounded. Western Hemisphere has been wounded over the last four or five years, largely by a massive accusation campaign. And uh, and they wouldn't be going through this if they hadn't abandoned the Lord of glory. Because the Lord of glory is our shield and our buckler. He's our exceeding great reward. This is what he told Abraham. Abraham, don't worry about the accusations coming by the Gentiles because I'm moving you into their territory. I'm going to set you up and your name is going to be the greatest name in the world minus David and Jesus. And don't worry about the accusations that are coming. I am your shield. Right. What a beautiful promise. And that means Abraham could walk by faith as Paul is walking and not really care about other people's judgments. The battle is the Lord's and so is the victory. So in the area of your conscience as a believer, I was talking to an extremely important young man, conversation with a young man yesterday about this because he has a propensity, like a lot of believers do, to negative sequence about himself to find fault in himself and drill down into hell just about in self-condemnation. I told you that in the first study. You have no right to do that. As a child of God, you have no right to bring more judgment on yourself than your master, which takes us back to the uh, first uh, category. It's not only do I take your criticism of me in the proper proportion of it being micro, But then I don't even judge my own self. This is what we talked about, right? And we weighed that out. It does not mean we don't analyze. It does not mean we don't critique. It it does not mean we don't repent when we find wrong. It does not mean that we don't investigate when we're troubled. We do. In fact, a living, breathing, believing child of God is constantly examining himself. The examination process has to actually be right, though. It has to be a process that's based on grace, And it has to be a process that's based on the clarity of your relationship to your master. I'm telling you what I told you over a week ago, that when you are a slave to a master, your slave, your master owns you in ways in which you are liberated from self-responsibility. Remember, I told you that 
And what that means is when your master owns you, he's obligated for your welfare. And so there are things about your life as a slave of Christ that God calls you to. And the outcome of your trying to do his will may result in other people having some kind of say about it or feel about it. And maybe even you. But when you understand what it means to be a doulos, that's a redeemed, bought slave who therefore does not live for his own will. That's why Jesus says, not my will, but thine be done, because he was God's doulos. Ultimately, when you are a doulos, God's will is way more important than your will. Now, we got a long way to go with that in this narcissistic culture in which I live. But it should be true that God's will is greater than mine. Christians are not doing that well in the West with that. But doulos is a big term. The other term, as we had learned also, is diakonos or deacon. That's the word for servant as well. And when you're a deacon, it's evidenced by when God gives you a command, you hurry up and do it. That's a deacon. All right. A deacon is not negotiating with God for a 10 percent raise. OK, when you're a deacon, it's just if God says jump, you say what? How high? That's all. That's all you do. That's all you do when you're a deacon. And the other one was the Hooperades. Remember them? They're the servant that is impactful, but not seen. The Hooperades is on the third deck, rowing the boat of the kingdom to help men and women get down the road. They are not seen. They are not heard, but they are felt. Right. And this is where Paul and Apollos have stated that they are. And therefore, Paul says, you can judge me if you want to. Your judgment is futile. I'm not going to even judge myself because I'm limited in knowing uh, all the depths and nuances of my own motive. I am not clear on my motive. I need the Lord to help me. And that's why the text says the Lord is my judge. Look at verse four again. Look at verse four, the latter part, so we can press in. For I know nothing by myself. This is for those of you who need to pay careful attention. This is sort of a grammatical nuance. When it says, I know nothing by myself, he's simply saying, if left to me, my capacity for peering into my own life is limited by all kinds of biases and ignorances. If I have to judge myself, I'm going to always give me a favorable outcome as a rule. Or, or if I am somehow massively traumatized by my past, I will condemn myself unjustly. I tell Christians this frequently. You may have all kinds of ideas about who you are and don't like yourself, but that doesn't make you righteous. You're not right because you go around scraping yourself and and flagellating yourself rhetorically, because a lot of Christians do that. They spend a lot of time beating themselves up. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. They spend a lot of time beating themselves up. And, And I hear it frequently. This is what this young man I was talking to yesterday about who I know is very new in the faith and he doesn't really know how to negotiate the mystery of the believer. What is the mystery of the believer? He is simultaneously righteous and sinful. That's the mystery. And how to hold those two tensions together requires grace. And if you have a grace orientation about who you are in Christ and who you are in yourself, then that grace orientation is going to keep you from exaggerating or condemning. Did that make some sense? If you have a grace orientation about yourself, you will be able to say, I am not what I ought to be. 
That's called honesty. That's first John chapter one, verse nine. If any man uh, confess his sins, God is just and faithful to forgive him of a sin. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I'm going to be. Now, that's a promise of hope, but I'm also not what I used to be. So not what I am, not what I'm going to be, but not what I used to be. That is the believer. He is in between grace and glory. And when he's in between grace and glory like that, God can use him. As long as he owns the fact that he is not yet perfect, but you're still the servant of Yahweh. And notice what Paul does there. He says, so I'm giving Yahweh, I'm giving the Lord, Kyrios in the New Testament, Yahweh in the Old. I'm giving the Lord the right to actually judge me. Did that make some sense? And, and, and the verb form is critically important. It's in the present verb form. Listen, for I know nothing by myself, yet I am not hereby justified. For those of you who didn't get that, that line means when you examine yourself and you can't come up with any uh, legitimate conclusions as to whether or not you are right, wrong, good or bad, a culprit of something or not, because that can happen. Job struggled with that. Job was accused, wasn't he? God allowed him to be accused. A lengthy journey for 40 chapters. And then his friends came along as emissaries of the devil and then accused him more. And Job bought into it. And Job started looking, trying to find something must be bad because I'm going through hell. And remember, you know, good people don't go through trouble. I don't know who Bible you're reading, but that's what they do. Right. Are you keeping up with me? And so, so, so our brother Job was drawn into the calumny of his friends. And he really went looking and he was desperate enough to actually challenge God. Now, you got to have a good relationship with your master to be able to challenge him. I'm jealous of Job. I don't know about you. I'm jealous of Job because he says, Lord, if I could find you, I would let you know how I feel about it. Right. And see, a person that's fearful of their God because they don't have a proper criterion of the grounds they stand upon, won't understand why that righteous man would actually appeal to God like that. They won't understand it. And this is the the last little caveat. This has to do with making sure that you don't let any other person outside of you bring you into legal bondage. But also you got to make sure you don't allow yourself to be brought into legal bondage. Now, a lot of way, a lot of times in order to keep from that happening, you got to make sure that you tug on the rope of connection between you and God and talk to God in sincerity and talk to God in earnestness and talk to God in candidacy with reverence and humility, but candidly, which is the way David talked, which is the way Jonah talked. You know, those brothers, I mean, they just had the conversation with God. Right. And God didn't move because the master purchased them. And all of their complaints. And, and, and this is in the present indicative verb form. That's the point. The Lord is the one that is judging me. I want you to get that. So this is not purely eschatological. What I mean by that is that often you and I focus on the last day judgment, don't we? We focus on the last day and we're about to deal with that because Paul is going to take us there. But that's not the last day judgment. The Lord actually judges you and me now. That's the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 10. The Lord judges his people. We're under judgment now as a church. And the believer is going through judgment every day. And the Lord is disciplining all whom he loves. 
And the Holy Ghost is bringing to remembrance frequently things that we do and don't do. But what we want to learn how to do is hear what he says and not what he does not say. Don't add to God's word and don't take away. Am I making some sense? I'm talking about how you enjoy your master because he bought you lock, stock and barrel with a total knowledge of everything that you are, will be and can be. He brought you having read the whole contract about what goes on the totality of your mind. That contract told him what you are, what you will be, and what you're going to be. God saw all those crazy thoughts and he bought it with his blood. So your present and future sins are paid for when you're in Christ. Did that make some sense? And so what that does is establishes a ground of grace, which I have discovered too, children of God, we're going there. I have discovered that Christians frequently are more comfortable with legalism than they are grace. Did that make some sense? Right, because it would indicate when you and I are not comfortable with grace, it would indicate that we don't know God well enough. I'm gonna help you with that so we can keep going. When we struggle with grace, it's not that we don't know ourselves well enough. It's just that we don't know God well enough. Did that make some sense? Right. Because when God says all the promises of God are yes and amen through the Lord Jesus Christ to the glory of God by us. That's true. When he says he is able to make all grace abound so that you will have all your needs met at any time. That's true. When he says I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's true. When he says, come, let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. When he says, I have blotted out your transgressions as far as the east is to the west. That's true. When he says, as a father pitieth his son, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. That's true. That's a grounds for having a grace relationship with daddy, isn't it? That's grounds for having a great relationship with daddy. Now, people are going to get jealous of you when you had that kind of relationship with daddy. But you got to tell them you need to grow up or show up. Grow up if you're in Christ. Show up if you're not. Because this is the kind of relationship I'm having with daddy because I trust him. He's told me I don't have to be like the elder brother sitting at home whining and getting mad and and arguing and everything and and being jealous of my little brother because he he really pushing the line of grace. You know, the prodigal son, he pushed that line. Did he push that line? And his older brother wanted to cut him off and don't give him no grace. Don't let him come back. And, and And the boy was a family member. Do you know what that means? Once family, always family. Right. Daddy's big enough to pay for your mess. This is what we're talking about. So as we talk about judgment now, here's what our brother says in verse five. This is important. First Corinthians four, verse five. Therefore, judge nothing before the what? All right. So two terms I'm going to lift up. Don't judge. Right now. So this is an imperative. What that means is there is a time to judge. He's saying to you, don't always be pulling the trigger, pulling the lever and making a conclusive assessment on everything that comes your way. See, some of us feel like we have to do that. A situation comes your way and they ask you, well, how would you deal with that? I would do I'll deal with it this way. Well, what if a person is in this situation? What do you think about it? This is what I think about it. Right. Christians always have the like jiffy made biscuit answer right away. And that's wrong. (laughs) 
I'm sorry, Bo, about the Jiffy. Me and Bo go way back. I eat Jiffy right along with Bo. But my point is, you will find Christians not knowing how to say, I don't know. They feel like they got to always know. You don't have to always know. You don't have to always know. And you don't have to feel bad about not always knowing, right? Because woe unto him that saith, thus saith the Lord, and the Lord has not said thus. You set yourself up to be a false prophet when you are acting in God's stead, saying something about what God should have said, but God didn't say it. Now God can't use you because you're running out before God as God's PR man. Like you got all answers. Lord, I got this one. You have to deal with it. This is how a lot of Christians are in the church, in this church. This is how Christians are. We, we need to get used to saying, man, can we walk through that? Sis, can we walk through that? I, I, maybe there's some nuances there we could talk about because I'm not quite sure. I'm getting, I really need to know if I can get you on that. Right. Because things are often more complicated than we give them credit to be. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord what? Until the Lord comes now. OK, so again, I want to warn you about that because it doesn't necessarily constitute the Lord coming eschatologically on the last day, setting up his great white throne judgment and setting the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Right. So I've taught this church about the coming of the Lord, the parousia of the Lord for years, that your Bible, whatever it uses, the term coming of the Lord is not always talking about him coming physically, visibly, bodily on the last day. Our Lord comes in multiple ways and you need to know those categories. When the Lord is coming to correct something in our life, he'll come through his instrumental means like the preaching of the word. We should expect the Lord to come in that sense every time we gather together in his name and by his spirit. The Lord should be coming and we should hear him coming when the word is expounded. And particularly when we are in what is called dialogos, when we are in dialogos, we should hear because where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. That's dialogos, right? These are two conversations that are compatible to the glory of God. And the third person is what ties them together. This is what we call fellowship. It's a sweet thing when the Lord shows up in the midst of two brothers on the road uh, to Emmaus. Isn't it a sweet thing? Right. And we should treasure that because the goal of the enemy is to bust up that fellowship because the Lord reveals himself in that fellowship. He really does. It's a beautiful thing because he reveals himself to his body through his body. And so. He will come that way instrumentally, but he will also come in providence. He'll come in the circumstances of our life. This is what we're going to see tomorrow and what we're learning in our Genesis study. God God shows up. He's a God of history. All right. So I'm going to put this parenthetical out there. I'm going to keep it moving. Uh, The difference between the God of the Bible and many other gods is most other gods are philosophical gods. That don't own the credibility of acting in history in a real visceral, concrete way like our God does. Your God is a God of history. That means all through your Bible, he's not just sitting in heaven. His will is being worked on the earth. The visible Yahweh is walking through the earth. The angels of the Lord of Sabaoth are working to manipulate situations and coerce situations and open doors and shut doors. 
and put up blocks, roadblocks in order to get you and I down the road of history. Every epic, every reset, and we're on number seven, I argued about that. Every reset is God showing up in history saying, okay, they blew it. We got to clean up and start all over again. Okay, these are resets. Okay, it's the first one was wit. Uh, with Noah. That's the first reset. The second one is with Abraham. That Abrahamic covenant is a reset. The third one is with David in the Davidic covenant. That's the monarchy. Okay. Then the fourth one was the Babylonian captivity of the children of Israel. That's a big one. And then the fifth one was the coming of our Lord Jesus. That was a massive reset. And the sixth one was when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. God let us know what was going to be happening when the temple is destroyed. The gospel will go into all the world and then the end shall come. You and I are up on the seventh reset. This is why it's called the seventh trumpet. Did y'all hear what I just said it? I'm going to leave you with that because it's important to know. And this is where you and I, I mean, you can ask me in the Q&A. I don't mind. This is where I am, at least. I'm like really trying to figure out what the heck is going on in my world. Not that I don't know the mechanisms, not that I don't know the strategies, not that I don't know the origins and design of it. I do. I know a lot more than I ever thought I would learn once the enemy stuck his head up out of perdition and showed himself over four years ago. Once I saw him rise up as the beast that he is, it became clear to me what he's up to. What I'm not real clear on is the duration of this ellipses on God's part and what the outcome will be. I'm not quite sure if he's not going to let us go into another reset that is going to require a broad sense a renewal of our mind in order to endeavor in this world in a fashion that constitutes the gospel, a both and scenario of the wheat and the tares growing together and us living in a community of radical tension between that which is organic and that which is synthetic. Are y'all keeping up with me? Because I I don't want to speak in code, but I don't want to get so far off the track yet because I'm actually working this through in a much more technical way. But if what God is doing is allowing this world system to enter deeply into a new paradigm of overt rebellion against the God of glory at the level of a parody, a parody of a false utopia, then the people of God have to know how to negotiate that. The people of God will have to learn how to negotiate a new artificial intelligence system that is integrative and comprehensively comprehensive around the world. The people of God will have to learn the language of the Babylonians as well as the language of Canaan. Did you hear what I just stated? And you will have to know how to navigate your way through Babylon like the children of Israel navigated their way through Babylon until Jerusalem emerges. And so a lot of that is going to be conversation going forward, because I can tell you the enemy right now, he it's no holds bar for him. He's playing for keeps. His goal is to wipe out the resistance of the kingdom of God. So that can be one kingdom, one global kingdom of darkness. That's his goal. And whether or not the church is up to the task of confronting this world system has yet to be seen. There is an element of biblical truth that bothers me in terms of the nature of going into captivity for this neo-Jerusalem 
uh, church age that we're in that I have yet to be able to measure and understand. But it would be on a par of that which happened to national Israel in 586 B.C. That was the second captivity. The first was in 609 B.C. with the Assyrians taking the 10 northern tribes. They went into captivity because they did not believe God. Ten northern tribes were prospering. They were a worldly church. They were wrapped up in the Babylonian culture and all of the new technology and all of the new religions. And they were making tons of money and they swore the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. God made us to live like hell and he'd still forgive us. They were going to the uh, to to the Moloch God in the morning and offering their children up on the uh, fiery furnace of Moloch and then try to come to Sabbath and Shabbat and worship God after that and expect God to forgive them and let them go. This is the combined hypocrisy we're dealing with today. This is the combined hypocrisy we're dealing with today. So I'm wondering whether or not in the same way Israel was incredulous, they were incredulous to the prophets because the prophets kept telling them, the prophets kept telling them, turn, turn, why will you die? The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, right? And the church just kept living in open rebellion against its maker. And God finally said, okay, Torah is going to come to pass. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26 is coming to pass. And when it starts to come to pass, you're going to cry and I'm not going to hear you. You're going to seek for the heavens to open. It's going to be like brass. You're going to look for the earth to yield this increase and it's going to be like dust. God had warned them, hadn't he? He had warned them. And so they went into captivity and it was a astonishing, horrifying experience for them. But they shouldn't have been surprised because God had told them before they got into the land, you mess my house up, woman, you gone. That's the metaphor of a divorce. I hope you know that. And he divorced her and sent her out of his house and sent her way up north into captivity. And told her, you're going to do 70 years. And after 70 years, you will be reformed. That's Leviticus 26, 70 years of exile to Babylonian captivity. And a lot of things happened in Babylon. We could talk about that because if God is sending us to Babylon, we're going to have to figure out how to live in Babylon. Did you hear what I just stated? And, and see, and it's not going to be the comfortable church we got now. I'm sorry. It's just not going to be the comfortable church we, we have now. They're, that's the delusion that Israel had. They thought nothing was going to change. They thought it was going to all remain the same. You prophets have been saying this now for hundreds of years. It was 900 years. It was 900 years they have been saying it. Can you imagine that? 900 years times a generation. You can, you can multiply that by two and a half. Okay. That, that just, that's multiple generations. 40 years is a generation. Okay. Generation after generation after generation after generation. God is raising up prophets. Be time. Sending them to Israel. Telling them. Telling them your time is your time is wasting. You need to stop because God's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. If he said it, he's going to make it good. If he declared it, he's going to bring it to pass. And he did. And Israel was astonished. And then men who accepted the reset. Like Daniel. And then Mishael, Ananiah and Azariah. And then Nehemiah and then Ezra. And then Esther and many of them accepted the reset. But the reset kept Israel in constant danger of annihilation. Y'all got that? Y'all got that? They were not secure. 
It was in constant danger of annihilation because the Gentile was ruling. The Gentiles were ruling. And so, you know, we have a we have a slither of prophecy that we have to think about in the near future as to whether or not God is done with the Western church as a expression, as a vocal collective expression. And then it's going to be down to little, as he says in the book of Isaiah, chapter six, there will be a few berries at the top of the tree, a twig here, a twig there. But the tree itself will be just about cut down. Does that make some sense? Right. So I'm really trying to wrestle through what that is looking like for us as I observe the maintenance of indifference and coldness on the part of the church relative to all that's going on. I'm going, okay, Lord, maybe you have blinded the church utterly. With the exception of a few people, maybe you have rendered 2 Thessalonians 2, 4 through 9 a reality. That's what I'm working through. I'm just letting you guys know. Um, And so here's what the Lord says. And so that's why I use the word maybe. Judge nothing until the Lord comes, because when he comes, it'll be evident. Judge nothing until he comes. Who will both bring to light the what? Hidden things of darkness. So see, This is what judgment is about is for God, because the enemy works in the shadows and in the dark. You have to know that. That's where he works. And human light, human uh, effervescence, human uh, uh, illumination is not adequate to shed light on the subtlety of the wicked one. Human illumination is not bright enough for us to see the dimensions in the shade of uh, of demonic control and mechanisms. It's not bright enough. We need the Lord's light to see the silhouette of the wicked one and to be able to see his models. Human judgment doesn't get it. This is why you and I are often frustrated by men, whether they are scientists, whether they are philosophers, whether they are theologians across the spectrum of institutions. We go, wait a minute, they're groping. They're talking, but they're groping. My spirit says there's still no light in them. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm listening and I'm really trying to get it and I'm hearing certain things and I'm going, ah, ah, he's still groping. He's still groping to the law and to the testimony. If he doesn't speak according to this word, it cannot be sufficient light to bring clarity on what's going on. And and then I remember what the Lord says. It's not often what they're saying, it's what they're not saying. That's the darkness. So people can be persuaded about about a lot of these authorities by what they say. The issue is what they're not saying. Y'all hear what I'm saying? It's like fill in the gaps because they're not saying something that we need them to say. Like God is right. And Jesus is Lord. And the word of the Lord is right. And men need to repent. And the problem is sin. And there's only one way to remedy that sin. Like we don't hear that, then we know there is a diabolic going on. Does that make some sense? Right. Really true, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, and they can impress you. And I want you to I want you to be exercised by how they impress you. I I listen to a lot of illuminaries. A lot of people that are on my uh, Gmail know that I listen to a lot of illuminaries and I recommend recommend many of them because they're moles that are drilling into subject matters I don't have time for, neither do you, neither do we have the skill set for it. But when they show us those pathways down in the deep, uh, you know, caverns of wickedness, then we go, okay, that's one of the entrails. But there are many. The serpent is this hydra-headed beast 
that's operating on many fronts. Am I making sense to you? Very important to get that. So the believer can sit back and see how God will use the Gentiles because he's always used the Gentiles to help the saints. He's always used the Gentile. Read your Bible. He's always used the Gentiles. He never told you and I that we have to be a jack of all trades. No, all we have to do is be those committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our role is prophetic and priestly. And so he'll use them to bring us near and then he'll give us a word of the Lord like a hammer and like fire that can break in pieces the mystery of the prophecy of that particular topic. And then we can bring it to light. That's, you know, what I do with you guys. I take a lot of these secular events and I define them by the word of God so you can get it. And that will go on. So until the Lord comes, he will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the what? Now, that's deep darkness. Saints, listen very carefully. No one knows the heart but God. That's deep darkness. When it gets when it gets to heart matters, you and I need to relax. Come here, let me help you. I can I can unravel the mysteries of your heart. No, you can't. No, you can't. For several reasons, you can't. The first reason that you can't is that the same spirit that you need for a revelation of your own heart, you need for a revelation of another person's heart. That's first Corinthians two. What man knows the things of man, but the spirit of man that is in him. Even so, we we cannot comprehend the things of God except for by his spirit. The spirit is the one that takes the deep things of God and brings them to light. And remember, you need God's light to shine on human light. So when we're working through the counsels of the hearts of men, we need the light of God's counsel to bring it to light. Does that make some sense? Right. So if I can't bring light to my own heart, I can't bring light to your heart without the light of God. Right. It's so very important. But this is where God gets the glory. He gets the glory when the light is brung. Uh, And then shall every man have what? All right. Have praise of God. So I want you to think about this. I talked about this before. Look at your outline. This is going to be point number three. A set day of judgment. I want you to think about this before we move on into point number four in our outline. A set day of judgment. There are one, two, three, four things that come out of this. Your judgment is of micro importance. That's what Paul said. Accurate self-assessment is impossible. We talked about that, right? Thirdly, the spirit's assistance and restraint is what? It's needed. The spirit's assistance and restraint is needed. I need him to assist me to know and I need him to restrain me from pretending that I know. Because you can go online and find all of these wicked false prophets always trying to give prophecies about what's going on. And they're ripping the people off every day. There's one cat I hear from people all the time. Do you know this guy? His last name is Khan. I say you ought to get a You ought to get a hint out of that. Do you know this guy? I say, yeah. Do I know him? He goes all the way back to the garden. So I offended somebody right there. I offended somebody right there. And it's amazing because he's been writing books for decades. Books, James, books. And they all fail. And here he is running off at the mouth again. But God lets them, he lets them live to test you and me. Did you ever do any research on him to go way back and see how he lied a decade ago, lied eight years ago, lied six years ago. And here he is again because he just knows how gullible Christians are. All right. And so it's important for you and I to know 
um, it's important for you and I to know. So the spirit assists to restrain us from making hasty judgments. And thirdly, we have freedom to wait on who? That's what I've been talking about. It's, it's a freedom when you can go, I don't know. I'm not getting it. I'm going to wait on the Lord. I don't know. I'm not. So like a lot of people can't actually do the hard investigatory work that I, I, put, I put before them. Because this requires the exercising of your senses. To be able to do deconstructive analysis of sophisticated um, ideologies requires the discipline of being able to stay on track with the logic of the argument that they're bringing. It requires discipline. A lot of Christians don't have that. A lot of Christians are party Christians. They just like to party and just trust it's going to work out. Right. That's where they are. And so they leave the hard work to other people. And even as much as other people will unpack the hard work, they still won't even get it even when it's refined. Because of what Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter five, verse 12, pull that up. I'll employ this as I get ready to go on. This is really important. Ultimately, this is important, what I'm about to say. This has to do with discernment. And discernment is not just some sense of intuitive knowing. Discernment is a whole cadre of knowings. It's the discipline of having been taught the fundamentals, the ABCs of the gospel. And having been taught the ABCs of the gospel at length, you develop a kind of grid of analysis that allows you to penetrate through the fundamentals of systems and see where they are corrupt. You may not be able to fully investigate and fully unpack them, but when you have a proper grid of interpretation, you can capture the theme of ideologies. And when the theme is wrong, the premise is wrong, then you know the conclusion is wrong. And they can get you if you don't have the ability to catch their overarching theses. If you miss their theses because their words sound no good and they, they got all these video pictures and all that stuff and, and they getting you by the panoramics and all of the, you know, all of the what I call hocus pocus stuff, then that means you're a shallow thinker. Am I making some sense? Raise your hand if I'm making sense to you. I'm going to help you with one more. This is how you should do it if you are given, if you're given to BS, that's bologna sandwiches. If you're given the bologna sandwiches, please understand, cut the voice down on the video. Particularly if it's, if it's writing. If you can cut out all of the background dramatic music in some of these presentations and all you had was raw audio, you get greater clarity. But where they're getting a lot of people is in the sub narrative of the musical themes and the images and all that, because the music actually is a language itself. It preconditions you emotionally. Am I making sense? All right. And so you can sit up there for hours and loving all of the techno drama and all that. Oh, and he's, his argument is really flat. But you don't know it because he didn't put it in this big old air balloon and you're going on a ride. Am I making some sense? Good. I'm teaching you how to discern every bitter thing. You got to be hungry. You got to be hungry to discern every bitter thing. For when the time comes, for when the time that you ought to be teachers and every believer at some level should be a teacher, getting ready to go there. You have need that one teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and you are become such as have need of milk and not what? Right, and so those people can't even enter into the debate. 
If, we, if we're talking history, they can't enter, the, enter into the debate of history. If we're talking politics, they can't enter into the debate of politics. If we're talking philosophy, they can't enter into the debate of philosophy. If we're talking economics, no conversation. If we're talking theology, sadly, frequently, no conversation. So even just with those categories there and all of those categories fold over into the virus that now is common, uh, th- that is now uh, corrupting our world. It's one virus. These are all metaphors of, of, of proteins that fold over and are sick and they infect the body politic at the economic level, at the sociological level, at the propaganda level of entertainment, education, at the medical level, at the theological level. Y'all follow what I'm saying? All of this is integrated into the propaganda that people are being wrapped up into, and they don't know how to see the, the intertwining of these philosophical constructs, and they're old. They're old. We, we would really, in theology, call them heresies. There are two spirits in the world, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. First John chapter 4, verse, uh, start at verse 4. I want to walk through you with this right quick. So this is what, so like in, in most of your churches over the last 10 or 20 or 30 years, guess what you didn't ever get taught? Heresy. Heresy was something that was taught in the churches during the Reformation. It was something that was defended against from the days of the apostles and then what we call the patristic fathers. They fought against the heresies that came into the church. Because Jesus said in 1 Corinthians chapter, at least Paul did, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, that heresies are going to be among you. Right. So the believer has to always deal with the weeds in the garden of propositional truth claims. You just have to deal with them. But right now, if I ask you guys to give me 10 heresies, you probably couldn't do it. And the Reformation had to deal with heresies all the time because the Catholic Church was an embodiment of heresy. And, and by the time the Protestants realized that the Catholic Church was really a, a megalomaniac system of antichrist with a papacy system that turned one man into the father. You wonder how did we get there before the Reformation took off? How did the church get to a point of actually diabolically opposing Jesus? Matthew 23, call no man father. You are all brethren. That's the egalitarian outcome of the work of Christ. Because Christ is our brother, we are all brothers. There's no hierarchy there. The hierarchy is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, and then the family. The family. Did that make some sense? We the family. The family of God, right? That's Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, around verse 15. I bow my knees unto the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name the whole family in heaven and earth is named. We're all a family. Did that come across? So it it makes you wonder, how did the church morph? I'm going to use that word in a minute if I get there. I probably won't. How did the church morph into something that was so overtly antichrist and nobody pick up on it? Can I tell you how? They had early on captured the word, which is what the enemy is doing today. Seeking to capture the word. If the enemy can take the word out of your mouth, he can put a false word back in it. They took the word of God away from the people 
and the church usurped it with traditions of men. The Latin Vulgate and Latin sacerdotal religious expressions and people stayed ignorant of the gospel and the truth of God. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? So you can't be a Christian, not a healthy one, without a, without a Bible, right? Faith comes by and hearing by. Lord, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is what? That's exactly right. To the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to this word, there's no light in them. But if I don't have the law and the testimony in me, I don't have enough light to know that they don't have light. I'm making some sense, right? Because this is where we are in our culture today. We're right back there. And I heard John Bunyan. I've read all kind of books. Y'all ought to know that. I heard John Bunyan in the Pilgrim's Progress. I heard him. He warned that that old man in that pointed cap is a neo-Egyptian cap sitting over there slobbing. And you think he's so senile and so inept and so harmless. Who was he talking about? The dead Catholic church. He said, watch out for him because he's going to wake up again. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Watch out for him. He's going to wake up again and he's going to be working behind the scenes with this politician and that politician and with this group and that group, just like Israel did in the days of Jesus. That's why they didn't want John preaching. I'm talking John Bunyan. They locked him in prison and the Holy Ghost gave him all kind of revelation. He wrote all kind of books because while you can bind the servant, you cannot bind the word of the living God. This is probably where we're going. This is probably where we're going. So, This is what he says. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is of the world. When we say he, we're talking about three things. The Lord Jesus Christ personified in the person of the spirit representatively and by the instrumentality of his word propositionally. Did that come home? You don't know Jesus apart from the Holy Ghost. You don't know the Holy Ghost apart from the word. We're not talking about some weird abstract knowledge of Jesus. We're talking about the hierarchy of Jesus by the spirit of God through the preaching of the word. This is how Jesus sits in our heart. Would you agree with that? Now, Jesus is in my heart by the word of God, by the power of the spirit, because the spirit has come to show Jesus to us, make him manifest to us, make him a reality to us. If you take away the word of God, then I'm going to be wrestling with what kind of spirit is about me. Is that true? Right. And if I don't have a security of what kind of spirit is about me, some spirit may give me a false Jesus because a false Jesus is emerging right now before your eyes. And he will be ubiquitously speaking through artificial general intelligence. It's coming. It's right around the corner. For everyone that is going to submit themselves to artificial intelligence as their main source of reality. Did you hear what I just stated? Just want you to know that it's coming. Now, uh, uh, just because you came to class tonight, the Lord's going to bless you because when you sow to the spirit, you reap of the spirit life. I don't want you to be thinking of it as some physical embodiment of Jesus floating on a cloud. Stop. That's old cartoon stuff. This one is way more complex and sophisticated. And this is where Christians have to be contemporary in their understanding. Can I talk about this? A little bit. This is where Christians have to be contemporary in their understanding. This is where I was thinking about this about four, four o'clock this morning. 
So Lord woke me up to start working because I had to work because I had a busy day today. So I'm up at four o'clock working on what we're dealing with now. And I'm not even on what we're dealing with now. So I didn't know that this was going to be a preface. And I'm sitting and I'm thinking, Lord, okay, we are in a post chronological depository truth stage. We are in a post ancient history stage. We are not in the first century. First century was when your Bible was completed. Your Bible was complete in the days of horses, donkeys, and buggies. We are in the 21st century. Men and women in the first century and 1,500 years before that were operating out of a worldview that was correspondingly heavenly and earthly at that time. What that means is that the revelations that they had that you and I are used to reading out of the apocalypse, out of the revelation, out of Zechariah, out of Ezekiel, out of Isaiah, that have to do with the four living ones and the angels and cherubims and all of that. And then all of the hyper symbolic language in the book of the revelation with the with the beasts and with the these monstrosities and the trumpet judgments coming out, scorpions and wings and heads of lions and all of that. All of that was a corresponding revelation between heaven and earth. These were earthly creatures that were conflated, hybrided, and then magnified as a vision to us of the beastly warfare that they were going through on a spiritual level. Raise your hand if you got it. Or else I'm going to say it again. Say only half of you guys got it. All right. So when you go through the revelation, which is compacted with imagery and symbolism and metaphor, Nothing of those metaphors in the apocalypse cannot be identified with some natural organism on the earth in its own independent ontological composite. We know what scorpions are. We know what horses are. We know what lions are. We know what leopards are. Okay, and what you see in the apocalypse is the taking of a lot of these zoomorphic expressions and combining them, even hybriding them with men. And then when we get into the angelic realm, we only have a few nuanced insights into angels, right? Remember, you never see human angels with wings. That comes out of the mythical world of the Greek culture, Persian culture, Babylonian culture, Egyptian culture. You don't see that in your Bible. God doesn't give us physical wings. You don't see no brothers flying around. You don't, definitely don't see no sisters flying around. That's a whole nother conversation, but, but it means something. All that's in the mythos. So what your Bible does, what your Bible does not give you is also important. Angels then are not coming in the physical form of women because your angels are largely given to the battle. They're given to the warfare. They're given to the conflict. And in the ethics of the gospel, women stay back. We don't give our women into that battle at that level. They fight a different kind of warfare. Am I making some sense? So the the angel, the warrior angels and the worshiping angels are going to take on an anthropomorphism that is male oriented, not exclusively, but singularly because they're not in a procreative paradigm. Am I teaching? Right. He made them male and female for procreation. That's down here, not in heaven. So so again, so to tie not on that. When we get to heaven, we get we graduate into that status. Didn't I teach you that? 
So when we all get to heaven, if, if it were so that we were operating with some kind of wings, two things. Uh, I ain't going to be able to see you, you know, Cindy, as a chick. <laughs> and you're not going to be able to see me as a dude. I'm an angel. She's an angel. We're all angels. Neither marrying nor given in marriage. In a dimension of fellowship and koinonia that doesn't require the necessity of human conjugal needs. We'll have an equality with our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And walking in that fullness as a finality and reward of the earthly mandate to procreate. So we're procreating now because God has an election according to, uh, uh, has a people according to the election of grace. He's going to save. That's why God's still letting babies get born. God's saving folk. Am I making some sense? Yes. I remember when me and Barb just had got saved 150 years ago. And they were saying the world's going in. And, uh, and therefore, you don't need to be having no babies. It was very evident that me and Barbara paid no attention to them at all. <laughs> right? Like we paid no attention. Like what on earth are you doing having babies when this is not the time to have babies? The Lord didn't tell me not to have no babies. Super glad I didn't pay no attention to them. And, and the reason why is because God had intentions on saving my children and my grandchildren and people they would impact. And the same with you and me. Because we're not going to tell the Lord when he's coming. We're not telling. See, one of the big problems of the church is the level of narcissism is off the chart. It's not about you. It's about the downline. And if we got brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews and cousins and folks running around on this planet right now, we're here for them. And the model of marriage must still be defended radically. At the male-female level, it must defend, be defended because what if God's still building his army organically? They are his army. Anybody listening to me? And I remember distinctly that God had told me very clearly I was in a battle when I got married. I was in a battle. They told me I shouldn't be married. I'm talking about this crazy culture I was in. Shouldn't be married. Shouldn't have children. This is not a fit world to raise children. Well, when is it a fit world to raise children? Right? You don't wait for its fitness. You bring the fitness with you by bringing God into the equation. This here is being counterintuitive and God's people will always be counterintuitive. This is the thing that we're getting ready to learn. What we're getting ready to learn is to be counterintuitive. We're going to have to actually bow to our Amish brothers and say, y'all saw something we didn't see. You're going to have to do it. You're going to have to bow to them and say, you guys saw something we did not see. We failed to see it and we have been corrupted through and through by as the church. They kept strong family, kept strong work ethic, kept strong identity, kept strong autonomy, kept strong land rights. They kept it. They kept it and, and therefore they have not suffered the plagues that we do. They breezed through, they breezed through COVID. They breezed through COVID like our poor brothers in Haiti and our poor brothers in Africa. And the reason why they <laughs> breezed through it is because they were too poor to buy the lie. See, being poor does work sometimes. 
<laughs> when we're talking about just nothing before the time, what I'm talking about for us is leaning into being very sensible and humble about learning how to negotiate where we are. Not everybody is comfortable with the humility that's required with learning on the run, learning on your feet, learning in the battle. But that's what we're being called to do right now. Did that make some sense? Right. And the most vulnerable people are the people that already know everything. The most vulnerable people are the people that say the former days, the former days are better than these. I don't like these changes. Why are you changing? We all changing. I promise you that that this is not how I look at 19. (laughs) We're all changing. Does that make some sense? And, And so what does that mean? That means that the believer has to constantly upgrade like everything else. Jesus was an upgrade. That's why they didn't like him. Jesus was an upgrade. John the Baptist was an upgrade. He could have started his own fashion line and his own food industry. He was an upgrade. He was an upgrade. The Lord loved those two men. Because they didn't allow themselves to get trapped by the system. And many people came to both of those men. Because they loved God. See, that's the real issue here. That's the real issue. They were content with their walk with God, their mission with God. They're super content. And people saw, ah, the secret out is a relationship with God. That's what we're trying to say now. And, and, And the most simplistic of this, the secret out of this diabolical, dialectical process is the sufficiency of God's grace keeping us. So that we don't let them give us a different name. That's how Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael were able to hold ground. They had names given to them, but they refused those names. They operated out of their Jerusalem name. It's an identity dynamic. Am I making some sense? It's an identity dynamic. And God will always preserve his people if we're here, if we're here on purpose, if we're here for a mission, and if we're here to actually arrive at our destiny, God will keep us. One of my brothers that go to grace... His name is John. I'm trying to remember his last name, but he was a military man for a long time. And he told me early on in this COVID uh, debacle, he says, "Uh, Pastor Jesse, I'm going to tell you what one of my uh, officers told me when we were fighting literal wars, whether it was Vietnam or other wars. He said, uh, buckle up, young man. We are in for a hard ride. So when you hear that from a military person that knows something about war, you know he understands what that means. That's not just euphemistic terminology. And so that's where we are. We're in a battle. Um, let me see if I can move on. You are of, little, of God, little children. You've overcome them. Greater is he than, that is in you than he that's of the world. Verse 5. Give me 10 more minutes and we'll go into Q&A. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak of the world and the world hears them. That makes sense, right? Here's a dichotomy going on. Don't don't over absolute that, but understand it principally. OK, um, there's a dichotomy going on. Now, look at verse six. Here's verse six is a principle. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. The we here are the apostles. It's the same we that we're dealing with in first Corinthians four. The apostles are the ones giving you your New Testament. When we go we, we're saying 
the Apostle John, the Apostle James, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Jude, the Apostle Paul, they gave us the New Testament. We are of God. He that heareth us, as he says, he that is of God hears us. Now, all John is doing, Johannes, is what Jesus said in the Gospels. I am of my father. The one that hears me, hears my father. If you don't hear me, you're not hearing my father. Did that make some sense? Right. So I love this because one of the things I used to teach years ago is the those that hear us, the us there can never be this kind of cultic assumption that the us is some group, some denomination, some church, some pastor, some senate, some group of elders. That's what cults do. It is not true that if you don't hear me, you're not of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is not true that if you don't listen to Pastor Jesse, you're not of God. Make that very clear. You and I on the other side of this this conversation here. The question is, are we hearing Jesus? Are we hearing his apostles? Are we hearing the words of his apostles? Because to hear the words of his apostles is to hear the apostles. To hear the apostles is to hear Jesus. To hear Jesus is to hear our daddy. That is the hierarchical procedural instrumentality. And therefore, if as a pastor and as a teacher, I am committed to that hierarchical structure, I might be a vessel by which you can hear the father. Does that make some sense? Through the son, by his spirit, through the apostles and according to sound exegetical teaching of God's word. And when you go away, you're more committed to and thankful to God for his word than you are for me. That's the big difference. The big difference is that when you go away, you know more about your Bible. More about your Bible than just some fanciful set of jargons that I might share with you. So many churches are brought into captivity of men because men will persuade them of ideas and notions unattached to Scripture as the grounds premise and argument and proof. And it's so important for us to do. At that point, we're dealing with idolatry. You do know that, right? I'm committed and our men are committed where where God gives us sanity to help you go away from this place, having a better understanding of God's word. That's all we want. All we want to do when we're done is to go. Did they learn anything, Lord? Which is where I'm going now. All right. Let's notice what he says. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. See it? Two spirits in the world. Spirit of truth. Only two. Either the spirit of truth is bringing you closer to God or the spirit of error is taking you further away. Ain't but two spirits. It's all I'm, I'm glad God knows how dumb we are. Let's keep keep it simple, dummy. Right. Kiss it. Kiss it. Keep it simple. Stupid. Right. We simple. One plus one is two. I do believe that. Do you? Right. I, I, I might be a white male chauvinist, but one plus one equals two. <laughs> it has for a long time and it still does. Spirit of truth and spirit of error. All right, let's go back to our text. So what I want to do now is just pick up at point number four and walk it through. It's going to be very obvious. I'll get to what I spoke. I think I'll be able to tap that. Give me 10 minutes. A pattern of us in Christ, discipled by our example, defined by uh, scripture and demolishing Demolishing the party spirit that we can pick up on Tuesday. But notice point number four. This one is going to be obvious. It's in verse five. 
the latter part where it says until the Lord comes, who will bring to light. Point number four, all things are seen what clearly when he comes. So I I want you to grasp that proposition and then we're going to just kind of move on. I'm not going to unpack it. If it's true that all things are are clearly seen when he comes, you and I can set aside all controversy. All controversy gets set apart when Jesus shows up. Because the level of clarity is such that all of us will see it the way that it's supposed to be seen. Did that make some sense? I'm going to say it one more time as an axiom. This is how we know when Jesus hasn't shown up is when every man has a tongue, a revelation, a vision, someone's over here, someone's over there, and it all amounts to Babylonian confusion. When Jesus shows up, he brings such clarity to it that we all see eye to eye, we all hear ear to ear, and the counsel is the same, meaning we come to the same conclusions about who God is and what God is up to. That's why we need Jesus to come. That's why we need him to come because we will be stuck at our own part of the vision of the elephant. Did that come home? I got the tail and I'm swearing I got the whole thing. You got the trunk and you swear you got the whole thing. No, 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 no. We see in part. We prophesy in part. When the Lord comes, then we'll see clearly. So we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come and bring clarity to us so we can have hearts of boldness and confidence that when we open our mouth, we are speaking light and not darkness. All right. So uh, I love this. So it's a day of revelation. This is what the Bible says. Listen to Romans 2, 16. I'm going to walk through this quickly. Romans 2, 16. First Corinthians 3, 13 says it too. He says, will you start back at verse 14? I like this. He says, for when the Gentiles have not the law, the external code of Torah, but do by nature the things contained in the law, that is, they acted out anyway, having not the law or a law unto themselves. This is why we've always argued that mankind always has a law because it's internal and it's written on his heart. Every human being has a law of God written on his heart. This is the fundamental grounds of you being created in the Imago Dei. Did that make some sense? Right. Every human being has that. As a child, it is extremely diminished in terms of your conscious awareness of your moral ethical choices. This is why I talked about it on Sunday. Children, until they are of age to be able to discern their left hand from their right hand, are not culpable of their actions. But once they are old enough to be culpable, then they are responsible for their choices because they have the a priori moral standard already embedded in their conscience. This is how we know right from wrong, all of us all around the world at those fundamental levels. Is it true? Right. They didn't all go to the same school we did, but we all came from the same God. Very important. Very important. Um, Verse 15 which show the work of the law written where their conscience also bearing witness with them and their thoughts. The meanwhile, either accusing, there's a judgment, self-judgment, mutual judgment, accusing or what? Which means we're we're all little kind of demi judges, aren't we? Is that true? So you wouldn't even hesitate if you had kids. Because if you had kids, what you would know by the time the kids are three and a half years old, they're little judges. Am I telling the truth? You have two kids. All you have to do is have two. One of them going to try to be the judge. Then the jury, the other one going to be the guilty, accomplice. And they can always be wrestling. They may switch up games, but I, I guarantee you the pecking artist is going to always have one that has the gavel and the robe. 
and we're constantly judging and excusing. This is how we know that we're created in the Imago day. Does that make some sense? You don't have cats and dogs doing that. Chickens and roosters don't go around with gavels and, and robes on. Only human beings because the law is written in our hearts. Now look at verse 16. I love this. Paul is saying the same thing that he says to 1 Corinthians. In the day when God shall do what? Judge the secrets of men. There it is. Judge the secrets of men according, uh, uh, the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So who's going to be the judge? Jesus. He's judging for God. That God. Whenever you have God and Jesus in the equation, it doesn't mean that Jesus is not God. It means that God here now is cardinal one. He's called what? The father. Jesus is the son. They are both equally God. They share natures. So the father lets the son judge. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 5? All judgment has been given unto me of the father. And notice what it says. Secrets are going to be revealed on that day. That's the whole point that I, re- I really want to get across. Now, if secrets are revealed on that day, guess what? There are a whole lot of secrets going on right now. This is why we got to remain humble. Because you and I are walking around in a sea of secrets. Things that are not opened up. Things that are only partially opened up. We see through a glass dimly. This is where humility must come in, right? This is why God, uh, Christ used the term mysterion or mystery. The kingdom of God is a mystery. Multiple metaphors of the mystery, right? And a lot of times the mystery was the subterranean work of the seed under the ground. You don't see it working, but it's working. Or the submarineal work of the fish in the water. You don't see the fish, but we know they're there. So by faith, we cast the net on the right side of the boat to bring them in, walking by faith because we're dealing with mysteries. Men are fish. Men are seeds. The gospel is a seed. These are all mystery paradigms. Am I making some sense? So we're doing them by faith. Like when a man and a woman come together in conjugal unity, that's a mystery. Christ and the church. And the outcome of that is supposed to be fruit. But that's all done in the subterraneal dynamic of the mystery of the womb of the woman. Is that true? Y'all get what I'm saying. Um, And then when the child actually is conceived, we see hope in the development of that fetus in the womb. This is called hope. This is called hope. And then one day revelation bursts out. That's why we have Revelation chapter 12 for the woman with child. Right. Moon under her feet, sun on her head, stars on her head. Right. She's clever than the sun. She has a, a belly full of a child. That's the mystery. And then that child is delivered. Right. That was the fifth reset. The deliverance of the man child, Jesus, who was exalted to its throne. So the son is on his throne now. He's running the world. This is what Paul is saying, that the mysteries will be revealed. Let me give you one more, even though there could be plenty more. I'm going to give you Ecclesiastes because this one is pretty clear. Ecclesiastes 12. This will be like the last verse on this subject matter. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Look at verse 13 and then 14. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. This is axiomatic through all the prophets. Here's what he says. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. First, what? Fear God. Secondly, what? 
Right, so Old Testament, New Testament correspondence of keeping his commandment is equivalent to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the New Testament dominant imperative for commandment keeping. First John chapter three, verse 14 through 16. And this is a commandment that we should believe on him whom he has sent and love one another as he told us. That makes sense, right? Good, y'all got that. Because again, if you're operating out of that kind of legal mind, keep his commandments going to have you wrapped up in a bunch of commandments that's going to send you into negative sequencing because you know you don't keep his commandments. Not perfectly. And if you don't keep them perfectly, you're jacked up if Christ didn't keep them for you. And if Christ kept them for you, then the thing that you and I want to make sure is constantly occupying our heart is faith in Christ. Because that is the commandment. Believe on his son. But what a what a gracious commandment. What a gracious thing for God to sum up the total of his law in the person of Jesus and tell you to just trust my son. How gracious is that? This is why the world on this fifth reset is going to be in real trouble because they're rejecting a gospel that really should be irrejectable. There's no reason why a breathing human being should reject the gospel. Does that make some sense? It makes no sense for me. You will have no argument for a God that has done what he has done and laid out before you simply believe. Right. So let us hear the whole commandment. Fear God. Keep his. This is the whole duty of man. Look at verse 14. For God shall bring every work into what? That's what we meant earlier by he will find you out. His job is to expose everything about us. He will bring it to judgment with every secret. What? Whether it be good or whether it be evil. Is that the way the New Testament talks? Sure. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10. Same thing. So what you and I are understanding is that there's a bunch of secrets going on. And with these secrets, you and I are culpable. We're very culpable because we don't know these secrets. We don't know the secrets of other people's hearts. We don't know the secrets of our own heart. We need God to reveal those secrets. We also know he's only going to reveal some secrets. We couldn't possibly contain God exposing us to all of the calumnies and schemes of 8 billion people on the planet. Our church would shut down if God just said, y'all come to church on Sunday. I'm going to open up the heart of Pastor Jesse and let all y'all see what's going on in his heart. Would nobody come to grace ever again? I wouldn't even come to grace because I would be watching and saying, what is that me? Now, see, because remember, their secrets. I don't even know them. I just believe God. I believe God. I believe God that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above everything. No human being can know. I just believe God. I just believe God that all kind of sea monsters deep down inside my thought processes. That nobody can go down there. But God, this is why I think those people were were arrogant trying to get down there to look at that Titanic. I really do. I'm like, sorry, dude, you ain't got enough money. Not enough money. Not enough money to go that deep. Now, God hangs out down there with all of those beautiful creatures. You have no idea what kind of mammoth creatures swimming way down there waiting to swallow up your little balloon. Here go man kind of just sitting in his little balloon. He looked like a he looked like a wiener. He looked like a sausage. That looked like food for one of them big old. 
And now we're going, we can't find him. He's in the belly of some monster you have never, ever seen in your life that God made. Now, is what I just stated plausible? It's very plausible. Very. David said it. You can read it for yourself. Psalm 104. David says there are things creeping innumerable that we cannot even imagine. He's so right about that. I tell you what, I'm going to stop right here. Man, I am so I am so disturbed by humanity today. Super disturbed. I need somebody to answer some questions. I need somebody running. I'm going to tell you why I'm disturbed and I shouldn't be, but I am. I'm super disturbed. And how much. If you have a question, raise your hand. Don't worry about that. If you have a question, raise your hand so we can get the mics out out for time's sake. Um. Maybe you can join me in this one. Maybe you can pray for me. I, I am not neurotic. This is not, I'm not having panic attacks or nothing, okay? I sleep good. I just want to make sure. I'm just sharing with you guys. Maybe this is about wanting you to become part of the committee of the concern. Like um, when God's changing things, he puts certain things on people's minds. Right. If you read your Bible carefully, he gives visions and insights to particular people that will be critical components in paradigm shifts. Do y'all know that? Have you read your Bible? So these these people can be high, they can be low. It, it don't really matter. God use anybody you want to. Black folk, white folk, women, children. And they get these visions and they can't let them go. And then, you know, these are called salience revelations. These are signals. So one of the signals I've been working through lately, particularly since the election of Joe Biden, is the level of wickedness at the propositional front. And I heard it again today in a, in a dialogue by a couple of scholars. How much our governments lie to us. And I'm, I'm like, they lie and then they lie again. And when you catch them, they lie again. Right, now, now, now follow this. If you don't take lying seriously, you will become a liar. If you don't take lying seriously, you will become a liar. Because lying is contagious. Lying is constantly recruiting people to share in its lie so that that lie can become the truth by majority opinion. See y'all later. Did, did y'all get what I just stated? So I want you to follow this. So I'm just thinking about how long will it be before our government says they were wrong? <laughs> well, I know, but I've been around long enough to have a few of my presidents admit they were wrong. Mm-hmm. 
I'm not necessarily persuaded by that, although I'll listen to your argument. And, here, and, and I'm putting this out to you because we're getting ready to talk for a little bit. But I want you to think about this with me. I don't mind wrestling with the pathological consistency of humanity at the level of all men are liars. I don't mind wrestling with that. It doesn't bother me at all. I'll contemplate it and I'll go to sleep and I'll sleep like a rock <laughs> and I'll wake up happy in Jesus. Problem is I wake up still going, dang, humanity is just a mob of liars at the level of controls. And I'm going, this is not good because you and I don't get better by swimming in the cesspool of lies. Ask anybody that grew up in Russia prior to uh, the Berlin Wall being broken down. People that grew up in Russia, they will tell you, they did not know the truth from a lie because it was so consistently veiled by lies. It happened for so many decades, for so many decades, that after a while, what everybody knew, they never could say out loud because they knew truth was too dangerous to say. Are you guys listening to me? I'm almost done with my little reflection because I am, I am positive that's where we're going. So the reset happening in the Western culture in America, in my country, is a reset that has already happened multiple times before and creating a whole worldview system and forcing it upon people by threat of livelihood and life so that those people are forced to take the stated narrative of the state. That's what's happening to us right now. And it's happening so absolutely comprehensive, comprehensively that they're actually doing it with our children and believing that we're not going to do anything about it. Now, I'm not trying to stir you up to get anywhere other than but more deeply reflective because when I think about once you go after our children, how much ground have you captured to believe you can take a woman's child whom she had to carry in her womb for nine months and all that crazy that she had to go through to have that child and the profound emotional, psychological, and physiological connection between that woman and that child and in just a couple years, she's ready to give that child up to the state. And I mean, the state owns that child. Did you understand what I just stated? No, so I, I, please wake up. Women do that every day now because they don't understand the high calling of dying for that child. So giving the child over to a massive regiment of vaccines from the time that they're born. The number is astounding when you look at it. I've shared that with you guys before. The number is astounding. No one, it's, a, it's a wonder the child can even breathe. It's a wonder the child can breathe. And they have all kinds of autoimmune deficiencies. All kinds, the child is sick for the rest of their life. And mom and, and daddy don't have any right to pull back and use another method without having CPS come after them. This is what we are today. And what it tells me is the state actually believes it owns that child. So we're having children for the state. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that is the height of idolatry. You'll see that one day. It is idolatry to no end. And it just makes me wonder, what is it going to look like when our leaders will have to say, I'm sorry and I was wrong? Right. So that did come up. Our, our leaders did have to speak to the travesty of slavery. They did, and they did. They spoke up. Several of our presidents did. You can look it up for yourself. The only reason I'm sharing that is because I don't want you having a cynical view of your own prejudice in, in relationship to the dark depravity of human beings. It's okay for you to be um, uh, skeptical, and even pessimistic. But my skepticism or pessimism and yours doesn't amount to truth. Did that make some sense? Right, because if the facts are there, the facts are there. And if we had a president admit major atrocities in the past, and they have on many levels around the world, then it means they can admit major travesties in the recent present as well. If God wants to actually move the hearts of the kings, whithersoever he wills. You see what I'm doing now? I'm calling upon our, us to submit our thoughts to scripture. Because if God wants to, he can bring the whole cabinet to repentance. The whole senate to repentance. He can cause our leaders to sit down in sackcloth and ashes and rend their hearts. And admit that they were demonically controlled by massive systems of evil going all the way to the top. He can, can he do that? Yes, he can. He did it to Nineveh. So I don't want you to overcome biblical truth by mere pessimism. Because again, that's not bringing light to the matter, is it? We want to be able to bring light to the matter. If we bring light to the matter, then we can bring hope. Remember, if you're joining me, I'm thinking about my grandkids. My kids will say, Daddy, why aren't you thinking about me? I love you, but I'm thinking about my grandkids. Because I'm thinking 10 years from now. I'm thinking 10 years from now. What am I going to be looking at when I look at my 23-year-old grandson? Or my 20-year-old granddaughter? What, what am I going to be listening to coming out of their mouth 10 years from now? Do y'all understand? because of the relentless pressure of the propaganda to press the lie on our society to create a maladjusted state in the minds and hearts of kids that have grown up in that cesspool. Like when you grow up in the hood, that's all you know. I'm just sharing with you how I grew up. It was normal. So if our kids are growing up under these like outrageous lies that are assaulting us at the level of reason and logic and breaking us down to the point that we are fundamentally reprobate. Reprobate is useless in your capacity to reason through. That's what reprobation means. Did y'all get that? And aren't we seeing the, um, the painful uh, trauma of our children at present under these circumstances? I'm appealing to you to listen to me, you know, not, I, I, just want, I just want to know whether or not you guys are in the proximity as I am with what's going on with our kids. They are unhinging. 
And to think that in 10 more years, when we are at 15 to 20 percent transgendered uh, children, that's the trajectory. Are you guys listening to me? That's the trajectory. These slaughter mills are all over the United States now. And parents are being told you're going to go to jail if you don't agree with your child's assessment of his pronoun or sets of pronouns. This is Mao Zedong's re-education camp. Explicitly, as you guys hear on my Monday program, people who have been there call and tell you what it was like. As Sister uh, Wendy, um, Asian sister, said, when Mao Zedong was done with the kids, they were all bald-headed. You couldn't tell whether they were male or female. This is how you destroy the gender. And now we're doing it with technology. You see what I'm getting at? This is like, so I don't know if the Christian is supposed to be indifferent about this. Somebody answer that question along with the others. Are we supposed to be indifferent about that? No, it's not my kids. Well, it might be. Or it might be your grandkids. And okay, if it's not your kids, then maybe you're extra blessed. Shouldn't that increase more indebtedness and responsibility? On, if, let's say, for instance, the angel of death didn't get my, my eight kids. I don't know if he did or not. I'm still praying for several of my kids. I really am. They know it, too, because they, they, if anybody is without excuses, my kids. Um, but if, if my kids should escape the, the deception... Shouldn't I and them be even more indebted to want to see other kids escape? We don't act like that as a Christian church. So you're going to hear me talking about this continually. Because I know people want to just stick their head in the sand and act like it's not happening. That's absolutely insane. Remember, Israel went into captivity for those killing of those children at the hands of Moloch. It was a common everyday practice. They go down early and burn up their children and then go to synagogue and temple. How do you do that? Am I making some sense? Right. We're down that road because there's nothing new. That's what I meant by the Bible being a, a fixed chronological framework. The issue, however, for me is about what are the visions now? Because the visions are not horses per se in terms of our present technological advancements. What are the kind of visions we're having now? What are, kind, what are, the, what are the manifestations, the, uh, the mysterions at the level of manifestation and uh, apocalypse, these epiphanias that are going on now? What are the grand optical illusions and deceptions taking place in our world right now? I'm seeding you. I know what I'm doing. I'm seeding you. I'm helping you open your eyes up to a new model of interpreting uh, an old zoomorphism in your scripture. An, an, an old uh, symbology in your scripture. So in the present day, I'll just give you li- one little tidbit from, from my own labors and prayer and fearful concerns presently. And you're going to hear it more and more over the next couple of years because it's all part of the deceptions. Aliens. Okay. You're going to hear it more and more. 
And here's what's going to be the challenge. Some of us are going to be saying, oh, that's stupid. That's not true. There can be no aliens. Those people, they ate, you know, some bad pizza or something. Well, a lie can still hurt. Is that true? Second thing. A lie with those kind of optics and narratives can have demons behind them, can't they? Am I helping you? Am I helping you? Because the power behind those narratives will be the reason why people buy into it. So at this point, what we're dealing with is having to have a way of understanding why people are succumbing to these new visions and new narratives and how to actually help them negotiate their way up out of it. Particularly when they say to you, your Bible has nothing to say to me. It doesn't talk to me about nuclear war. It doesn't talk to me about aliens. It doesn't talk to me about artificial intelligence. See what I'm getting at? What the world is being created to do at present is to make your Bible completely irrelevant. Questions? Knock out two or three. Ladies first, who has the mic? You guys running around giving them the brothers. So I want you to think about that. Say, Pastor Jesse is asking you to map ancient symbolic, symbolic, metaphorical, typological patterns onto to New Testament reality to show a corresponding truth claim that truth is eternal. Now, when we're dealing with the spirit of error and the spirit of truth, can we map scripture onto where we are and understand it in some kind of legitimate, plausible correlation? Does that make some sense? Very important. Otherwise, they're going to they're going to tell you your Bible is irrelevant if you can't speak to where you are today. They've been making that argument for a long time. They've been making the argument that the Bible is irrelevant for a long time. Cindy. Okay, so if we know that in our Bible that there's these resets and that God always wins because he's God, we have to believe that we serve a God who's in control. Mm -hmm. So my thought is they have power over them, us, because... They think we need them through our schools, through our hospitals, through our businesses, through our gasoline, our electricity. I believe that when you talk about purpose and assignments, that God has given his children vehicles with energy, clean water, um, education, uh, clean food. And these companies are going to be, you know, like on earth as it is in heaven. They're going to be kingdom businesses. And they're going to get so big that they won't, they won't be able to mess with us because we'll be able to be kind of like when you said with the Amish, we'll be able to sustain and we won't need their lives. So I think the only thing we should do now is trust our Bible. And like when you said, when you don't know the answer, wait and listen and ask for your assignment and just... Go for it. Like, I think that, that we just can't, like you said, put our head in the sand. We have to ask God, what are you doing? How do I participate? What's my assignment? And if we all do that collectively and pray for each other and help each other out when somebody has an assignment, and let's say there is a kingdom business, we got to get it funded. we got to get, the, you know, and they're trying to build universities. And I think that this is going on on a global level. So. Now, who was that? Who, who was doing that? <laughs> Somebody with ADHD? 
Corpses. So, so anyway, I feel like um, it didn't work through the church, so it's going to work through businesses. And through businesses, there'll be people, and they'll have powers, and through um, thriving businesses, we'll be able to, you know, create um, a sustainable environment where, you know, people can pay, pay their bills and get education and, you know, build our own schools. Like, if they're telling lies and they're putting stuff on our children that we don't believe in, then we'll just have to create our own schools and our own food and our own businesses. And we'll just have to just do it God's way and trust that he'll show up and meet us in the moment and part the seas like he, he always shows up so we know that he's with us and for us. I actually agree with her to a large degree. What do you guys think about that? Is that a vision of hope? Yes. It's very, it's very important to take it. I could, I could dissect it and demonstrate the weaknesses and strengths in it, but I certainly do. Uh, so what she's talking about is another plan. And if you do a very careful analysis of your Bible, you will discover that saints always had another plan. It's like Noah's Ark. Okay. Right. Who, who's next? This part is a really good conversation. Gordon, Mr. Zager, is your mic on? It's not on. Okay, so now I get nervous. I wasn't nervous before. So this is just one of the great reasons uh, to come to church here. Uh, Pastor Jesse talked about three weeks ago about love, being loved unconditionally, and how that's taught as a lie. Right? Remember that service? And it was kind of light. It was really great to hear that. And then I was watching Charles Stanley, and that was one, So when you think about his son erring from the truth, that was one of the ten things he knew, he knew was that God loves us unconditionally. So I thought that was kind of neat because that's one of the reasons everybody's kind of kind of crooked on the straight and narrow on that end. And the other thing is, do you think you should use uh, Schwabian terms for biblical events? The reset? Really? Yeah, absolutely. Really, do you have a King James one you could use? Because I think that one of the resets nope. might have been sending the Holy Spirit. No, that's... Reset. I don't like using Schwabian Schwabian. Yeah, you're making an assumption. I right, thank you. I'm, I'm gonna clarify you on that. Okay. So thank you. Uh, you can take his mic. So I'm gonna help you guys with something too. Um, reset is not a, a Schwabian uh, new name nomenclature. So when you hear people use terms, it doesn't matter what the term is. It doesn't mean that they are the founders of that term. That would be a massive misrepresentation of their power. Right? So um, reset is not a bad term at all. I probably can justify it scripturally. But it's not also axiomatic that if you just use scriptural terminology, you're using it the right way. You can misrepresent scripture too. The third thing along with that is all of your terminology in mind as Western English speaking people is not confined to the scriptures. So you don't want to buy into a kind of nomenclature that is all Bible as if the only true statements are going to be biblical statements per se that are written particularly in the King James Version. Right. Uh, that would be a fallacy of logic at that level. The issue will be what does the term etymologically and contextually does reset mean. Right. Our lives are full of resets. That's just the nature of life. Um, so you may not like the so-called Schwabian thing yourself, and you might find a better one. I use it as a conventional term. 
I use it as a conventional term because the more people that are used to that word reset, when you hear a theological framework put on it, they can much easier understand what we're talking about. So your first part was really, really good, understanding the grand era of um, Charles Stanley's son. He's so far woke and out there, but we warned about him many, many years ago. Um, his dad was much more of a straight arrow. There you go, you know, two different pathways. This is why this is a matter of the fruit of the spirit versus the spirit of error. We got to be very careful about that. But, you know, take my admonition um, humbly, uh, Mr. Sager, because people will say, well, that word's not in the Bible. Well, it may be in the Bible in terms of its concept and its meaning all over the place. And we need to be careful about that. These are called uh, word fallacies. Be careful about word fallacies. Yeah, be careful. That would be a kind of self-righteous argument. Like the Trinity is not in the Bible. The Trinity is all over the Bible. Right? Like you can't actually even frame the Bible properly without understanding the Trinitarian framework. Okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that. And I can give you a bunch of others, but I'm not doing that. So as Christians, um, be very careful about using... Uh, Word fallacy arguments, because they can come back on you. All right, be careful about that. Having done many debates, I know that. Who has the mic? Next question, I want to do something. Go ahead, uh, go ahead on. Uh, Marlis, and then AJ, I'm going to cut this air off, because y'all are going to freeze to death in a minute. You can talk while I'm going. I can hear you. I should go. You can talk. Okay. I can hear you. You said tonight, you talked about judging oneself and judging in general. Um, what I got out of it, is that we, well, I'm wondering if what you want, one of the applications of this is that we should, well, can you give me some more, help me to understand, are we, are we also, don't we need to examine ourselves, in, and particularly if you have recurring issues coming up in one, in, in life, as I do, what, um, what path or what are my is my recourse and how does a person really evaluate um, things properly i that's i'm not sure I'm being clear but also also it relates to mental health too how do you know when mental health is interfering with um, proper evaluation. Okay, so I'm going to tie that because, again, you know, you're, you're drawing out. I don't want you to fatigue anybody. I pretty much have your question down. Okay. And a lot of it is that you really didn't hear because I talked about this like for three weeks now about how to understand that our judgments are always partial, limited, and, and potentially fallible. Did you guys hear me state that? I stated it for several days now. This is why... You can't put too much stock in your own self-evaluation because your judgment of yourself is going to be limited, it's going to be biased, and it's going to be fallible. So to make an assertion that your self-judgment is infallible is to occupy Christ's throne. This is what I talked about. When he bought you, you are his doulos. That means he actually has a better assessment of you than you do. And even though we are called, I told us, we are called to self-examination. And I gave you a whole litany of passages as to how believers do that. That's why 1 John 
1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, that requires self-analysis, right? If we discover, ah, something's wrong. We don't have to equivocate about that or argue. We know that we violated something there. But there are other times when we're trying to wrestle through whether a thing was right or wrong, and we will come to the conclusion if we are healthy in our relationship with the Lord that I can't actually bring a judgment on that. I don't have that assessment. I need to wait on the Lord to bring it to me. And he may bring it to me directly through my relationship with him, calling to remembrance, right? Or he may bring it through other means. We talked about that in the fellowship of the word, by passing and reading scripture and devotion. A lot of times that's how the Holy Spirit will bring to light certain things in our life. This is why Paul meant my judgment is of the Lord. That means he's tied to Christ and Christ can bring judgment on that thing whenever he wants. And whenever God does that, you and I are very much thankful for that because there is a real sense of resolve when we know the Lord says, okay, okay, Jess, that was wrong. Versus somebody telling me that was wrong. Versus me telling me that was wrong. Does that make some sense? Like when the Lord really does do it, even if, if, if it hurts, it hurts in a good way. Because it's like, oh, I'm wrong. It's, I mean, I know myself now. I know how I am with, with the Lord and I'm thankful for it. Like when he cuts me, I'm like, uh-uh, I'm not going to fight with you. <laughs> I'm wrong, right? Because the sooner I just go, okay, this is uncomfortable. I'm wrong. Lord have mercy on me. And he, he knows how to work that humility in you and that kind of repentance. Immediately you're turning. Now all I need is healing and then strength to rise up out of it and then just keep it moving. And at that point too, what I am learning to do, and you should as well, is not go back and visit the scene of the crime. Because God has not only indicted me like he did with Nathan, with David today, David, you are the man, but God has forgiven you. David, you are the man, but God has forgiven you. David, you are the man guilty, but God has forgiven you, paid for by the blood of Christ. Let's go. Right? How good is God in that? So, Marlis, you just have to work on the humility of being able to not know certain things and give it to the Lord. Did that make some sense? That's what I was calling us to. You're just not going to get all your answers. And yes, mental illness, we all share on that spectrum. We're all somewhat mentally ill. So you're saying don't even try to solve everything about your own I'm own not saying self. that. I'm not saying that. Oh. I'm saying you can't. You're saying we can't. There you go. And you can go around the bush if you want to, but I'm not going to let you do it this time with us. So you, you got to work on that. Did y'all get what I meant by that? Because you can do that with yourself and then you can try to do it with other people too. You know that. Don't go around the bush with yourself and don't go around the bush with other people. Other people don't have time to go around the bush. People that love you might go twice. The third time you talking by yourself. Uh, and, and that's about really, how beautiful it is to take our, our OCD and our hypertension and all of our variable cycles, somatic and neurological disorders and just give it to the Lord. But that takes faith. All right, Lord, I'm going to give this to you. How, how liberating is that? Right? And, and to know that the Lord has it. That's why he saved you. So you wouldn't have to go around the bush all the time. He ain't going around the bush even though he made the bush. He ain't going around the bush. Who has the mic? AJ. Um, so I have a question um, kind of from a, a parental standpoint. Yes, sir. Um, 
I need somebody to help me take the board down. We will see many of you guys tomorrow at Brother Josh's memorial. Go ahead on. Um, so I'm trying to, uh, so I frame it. I, I stopped. No, I stopped, you know, kind of paying attention to what I call the, like the local news a long time ago. And I haven't really been, you know, part of the whole social media, you know, like the, the big ones or anything like that. Right. And so my question is, um, as we're doing like, say, family worship and, you know, and I'm teaching the kids, um, I'm getting the videos from the email and I'm watching them. And I'm just wondering what exactly, you know, how to balance the teaching of scripture versus what's going on in the world. Because, you know, kids are getting older to that age where they're, you know, they understand things and we have great conversations, but should I be, you know, explaining what's yes. happening in the world? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, so the, the, the indictment on the church for the last hundred years minimal is we've let the world teach our kids. That's a clear indictment. It's a clear indictment. Declare indictment. I, we've let the world teach our kids. We thought we could put them in good public schools and they would be all right. But it wasn't all right for our parents. It wasn't all right for me. So why should I believe it would be all right for my kids? And we're exponentially worse. That's one thing. In terms of just conversation, our kids are way more exposed to the conversation and dialogue of the world than ever many of us were. And because to a certain extent it's unavoidable, you should be the mediating paraclete, you and your wife, Stacy, in their conversations so that they have to engage the commentary that they hear from the world with the voice of mom and dad. And that's a supplement to two things. The obedience of raising your kids in the fear and the nurture of the Lord, like we do in this context here at Grace, and personal devotions, so that your kids grow up privileged to have the word of God abiding in and around them as the lingua franca of the home. And mom and dad, they know are serious about God. That is a huge blessing. I saw the fruit of it myself just recently with one of my daughters. The reputation had come back to me, you know, Pastor Gistan, I just want you to know your daughter, man. That girl kicks my butt in theology. And I'm like, yeah, that's what she's supposed to do. Yeah, that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to check you brothers when y'all are trying to get in through any other door but the front door. I'm not saying that for boasting. That was very comforting for me to hear because I don't, I don't helicopter my kids. My kids are free. They grown. I was celebrating when they got their first car. <laughs> I got mine at 15. So like they were 17. I'm like, good, go on, go on, go on. Tell me where you're driving. So when I'm out in the road, I go the other way. Just let me know. Um, but, I, you know, we, we want to hear those reports come back that our kids are standing on the truth and that the feeble labors that we put in work. And, and if they work, it's not because of us 
directly, but because God's promises are true. Did that make some sense? Right. And this is why I want us to be careful about negative sequencing and severe judgment of ourselves, because that doesn't honor God if God is not as worried about your negative merits as you are, then you should be careful not to overdo your negative merits because that becomes a tenor of conversation that is not gospel-oriented or hope-oriented. Does that make some sense? Right, and it should be language that should also be emitted from your kids. It, It should be emitted from your kids unless your kids are going through some kind of trauma or some kind of, you know, episode, because if they're going through an episode, then, then, then all that inheritance can be shrouded for a moment. But if they're healthy, then they should, they should sound optimistic. If we do the gospel right, our kids should be optimistic. I'm not talking about necessarily giddy and, and you know, but optimistic. Because you gotta, you gotta have faith in this world. You gotta walk by faith. Who has the mic? Lamont? Yeah, I, I just uh Okay, who? Oh, somebody's ahead. Okay, go on. T. Go on, sir. Hey. Um you talked about got to put the mic closer. Mm-hmm. It's on. You talked about um how you was looking out for your grandchildren. I I am looking that way, you know. Now, I have a daughter. She's in the world. She loves the world. Mm-hmm. She loves the world. She know about God, but she she don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, I then I have moment. a granddaughter, and I can only deal with my daughter for a certain length of time because it's all it's enmity between me and right, her. It's like right, right. we can't talk. Right. But she have a daughter that's doing the same thing that she's doing now. How old is your grandbaby? Eleven, okay. and she's doing these these um, womanly things. Mm-hmm. You know now. Yep. 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 So it's like I don't know how to reach her because the only way only way I can get talk to her is through if I talk to her mom. I can't take her from her right now because she you know, I can't take her I can't take her legally because she hasn't done anything wrong to get put into the system because if she was to go into the system I would take her and try to you know straighten her out. But yep. how do I do? I mean I I can't allow my daughter to make me you know out of myself. Take, take me for myself and say what, what, what I really want to say or what comes to my mind. I can't do that. So how do I do this? How do I, I don't know how to reach my granddaughter without dealing with her. Right. Here are three things that you're going to have to recover that you have to establish your walk with God as a primacy of expectation. Your walk with God, all of us, all of our walk with God helps everybody. Like when when you are well with God, it helps everybody. So you have to know that. You have to know that the goal is not to get into a wrestling match with anyone at the expense of your own walk with God. Never do that. Because once you are doing that psychologically, preparatorily, you are now engaging in, in will worship self-will and failing to realize that God's sovereign and is allowing this particular conflict to exist for, for a reason. Remember, you're a slave of Christ. So here you are as a slave of Christ and you got to battle with your daughter. This is, you know, Philemon and Onesimus and Paul 
And the thing to do is to simply understand you're a slave of God. She's a slave of God. Your granddaughter is a slave of God. Doesn't have to be in a saving way. The Lord is Lord of all. And so what you want to do is make sure that you are constantly maintaining the priority of your walk with God, because at any given moment, God, the Lord can open that door where your granddaughter says, I want to, I want to meet with G mommy. Can I talk with G mommy? Can I talk with G mommy? And the moment G mommy has, you know, the opportunity to talk with her granddaughter, G mommy wants to be at her highest level of godliness. And the reason why is because G mommy is magical. Stay with me. G mommies are magical. Every G mommy is magical. Magical meaning that they are so important in the life of their grandkids. Every, every grandparent. It's simply a fundamental expectation that grandkids view their grandparents as something special unless they have been injured and, and that bubble of sort of uh, naive, uh, spectacular, wonderful expectation is shattered by our carnality and our selfishness. Our grandkids ought to see us as special. And so every time we have a moment with them, it ought to be a special moment. The second thing about that, and this will be the third one, so it's about you knowing that you need to be walking as, as upright as you can with your God waiting on her. Secondly, knowing that God can open that door for her to want to communicate with you. And you can believe me for her attitude toward you, even though she's operating out of her own space right now because she's becoming um, sexualized way too early. That is only a part of her personality distraction. You guys understand what I mean by that? Like when kids are operating out of a sort of phenotypical expression, they're only operating out of a small slither of their personality. There are other areas in their total uh, personality makeup that is something else altogether different. And a lot of times they are operating in major contradictions, like a little girl that can be sexualized in one area. She can be so gentle and so compliant and so childlike and so innocent in five other areas. Those other areas are the areas you want to find and cultivate and nurture because those are probably more true to her hardcore character than is that external facade or schematic. This is what I was going to deal with today, but we'll get there because we are all putting on schemes. And we know this is why reset is a completely legitimate term, because even in our own chronological development, we put on one scheme and then we put on another scheme and we put on another scheme as we graduate up in age and in life. We are not the same person every so many years. For women, it's every seven years. By the time you are, you know, in your 40s, you, you didn't you switch schemas about 15, 20 times. I'm kidding, but a lot. That girl could be totally um, a blessing seven years from now. That schema that she's walking in, it's a, 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 it's a ploy that she's using because it's to her benefit right now in the context in which she's living. But if she had a situation to be just with grandma, G-mommy, 
and, and be able to be with you for a week. You would see how she would change, come up out of that pseudo adult style of wanting to be to just be happy and playful and kiddish and joyous and, and open to conversation and dialogue and, and hoping that you get up on her and touch her and hug her and be warm with her and love on her and let her feel that so it can absorb into her being so she can set in herself, I want to have this every other week, even though she's doing these other things. Are you hearing me? All right, okay. Who has the mic? Are we done with our sisters? All right, Bo, we're going to try to shut it down. It was a theological question. Um, it was, uh, was Adam's fall also a reset? Well, obviously with, uh, yeah, with, uh, with um, Adam and Eve, that's where it starts. But no reset is needed if they didn't fall. So resets are a consequence of the fall. So I would technically say that that fall is not a reset. It's a grounds for reset. But one could argue it. Does that make some sense? One could yeah, argue. No, that makes sense. Yeah, one could argue it. But I would say, like, for instance, with Noah, the reset is not that Noah is going from sinless to sinful or from sinful to righteous. These resets are chronological as a consequence of the fall. The fall is setting these redemptive reset paradigms. So the first one for me is at Noah. At Noah from the fall of Adam and Eve to Noah, set one. From Noah to Abraham, set two. From Abraham to the Moses era, set three, and so forth. These are advancements in a redemptive scheme. But I would not argue with someone if they wanted to, to develop that out. I'm just, I'm just seeing a sevenfold reset pattern that's bringing us to that seventh trumpet. The book of Revelation is speaking that the seventh trumpet is being blown right now. And I'm trying to understand that seventh trumpet bl- blowing. And what I am loving about our conversation, and I thank you guys for your patience, is that our conversation is not dire and hopeless. Even as we're talking through what's going on, it's not dire and hopeless. And I do want to capture a bit of what, uh, what Cindy is talking about because we actually share visions. And, and I'll you know, just touch on it as we, as we close. So I saw somebody with a mic. Pastor Jesse, yes. so would you say that um, the church is made up, and I say this compassionately, without judgment, more cowards or more Christians today? Yeah, that's a good way to frame it. And I am going to say that we are more cowardly. And, and cowardiceness, yes. That's what it means to be an unbeliever at the regression level. So this is exactly what God said will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. He said cowards won't enter in. That's Revelation chapter 21 and then Revelation 22. And cowardice is rooted in unbelief and is rooted in fear and is rooted in the deficiency of faith that's absent, that is willing to be assertive and stand in the midst of evil, which is why God gave us faith to do that, to stand, okay? So history has proven that the church in the 20th and the 21st century is not at all like the historic church of the first, second, third, fourth, fifth century at all. We are very much cowards. 
And that's really sad because the commentary is around what element, the, what element or role the church will play in overcoming this particular evil, moving into what some of us are already doing. So if, 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 uh, if, if this reset that's taking place creates a significant divide, this is where I'm going to close, a significant divide, an, um, an unarguable, unavoidable divide between people who will completely succumb to 15-minute cities, uh, the biomedical uh, surveillance state, central banking credit systems that completely take out, take out of your hand control of your money, um, a capitulation of compliance everywhere you go if you want access to anything, because I'm describing China right now for those of us who are keeping up with me. I, I'm really remarkably surprised, but I have to stop being that way of thinking that Americans are in the know, and they're not. They're not in the know. They don't know what's going on in uh, Australia. They don't know what's going on in Canada. They don't know what's going on in Asia and China. Uh, in small portions of South Africa, it's also going on in the Netherlands um, as well. They don't know that a lot of what we're talking about is already advanced technology working on the ground. And if you take uh, Beijing or you, you take China, they're already in total compliance. So total compliance is when, after so many decades, people just become maladjusted to the fact that there are Millions of cameras everywhere watching you at all times with facial recognition, uh, heat sensory recognition, uh, levels of biotechnology that are able to read your facial expressions and determine whether you're mad, glad, or sad. And you are obligated when you are passing from one state to another to actually smile for the state. And if you don't smile for the state, you won't have access. This is not funny. This is not funny because it's happening. And what that demonstrates is that this is what I was thinking about concerning the state. This is why I was raising the question. Will they ever say they were wrong? Um, it won't be until they are brought to trial. Okay. Because this is just the way evil works. You know this at the micro level of any relationship with a bully and a victim. Like a bully just doesn't all of a sudden stop. A bully just keeps bullying and, and upping the ante so long as the victim is compliant. Are you guys hearing me? Because the, the victim is now paralyzed by fear and the inability to actually hold dignity in themselves with the objective of fighting or flight. They can't, they're, they're paralyzed. They can't fight or fly. And, and, and that's because of the perpetual domination of the bully upon them. And what we have been experiencing in America is bullying from our government. It's a mild bullying that's going to become stronger and stronger. And no, it's, it's not mild, because while at the government levels, legislatively, it is somewhat remote, on the practical ground level, 
their, uh, their foot soldiers have been working for quite a while now telling everybody they'll burn everything down if you don't listen to us and comply with our rules. And because we do have the Maoist re-education going on in our schools, parents are being threatened that their kids are going to be taken from them if they don't comply. So compliance, compliance, compliance is what's going on. And when you're dealing with a bully telling you to comply and there's something in you that says, I don't want to comply, then you're going to have to find the strength to stand up against that bully and find measures by which you can address that bully in a lawful and a biblical way in order for that bully to be exposed as himself being even more insecure than you. But because he's able to pull the wolves over your eyes as a bully, he's going to keep doing it until he's exposed as himself being insecure and incompetent too because every bully is insecure and incompetent. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why we need heroes. This is why we need heroes. We need men and women who are our heroes. That's what you're, I, I don't, I don't, I think about this with me. I need to stop. But is Moses a hero? See? Is Joshua a hero? Is David a hero? Is Nehemiah a hero? Is Esther a hero? Right. So when people talk to me about don't mix faith with, with the Bible for me, I'm like, you are stupid. You are utterly stupid. Did you guys hear what I just said? You're stupid. You're brutish. You don't believe your Bible. I, I think maybe you're scared. I think maybe you're scared to understand that God has entered into history through faith and raises up people to face bullies. And this is how all of us enjoy a good life. Yeah, I, I really do. And, and that's what I'm wondering through just right now with, with our country. Are we a bunch of cowards? Because I can tell you, I heard a man that's controversial. He's very controversial and he, he ticks women off. But if you understand some of his axioms, you can understand why he draws millions of young men, millions of young men to him. And I'm not talking uh, J.B. Peterson. He does, too. J.B. Peterson is much more of a sort of uh, old school scholastic gentleman with um, a great sense of, of, uh, of comprehension of what's going on. And so a lot of men look up to J.P. because J.P. Has, has, has written books about getting your life straight. And I totally get that. This here back in the day would be called tough love. Tough love is pull your pants up. You're not in jail. And use yes, sir, and yes, ma'am when you're speaking to adults. There's just certain things that work. And if we don't tell our kids they don't work and it always hurts them in the long run. Did that make some sense? And I'm just using that micro example. And guess what? So many people are so cowardice that they're afraid to actually talk to a young person the way I just did. I grew up in the day when the old cats would whip my tail, kick my A up and down the street if I said something wrong to the grandmamas. I'm their dog. They're waiting to raise the next generation of Rottweilers. But if you say something stupid to Miss Sarah, we will tear your tail up. I was in Africa. I probably already told you this. I'm an old man, so these stories come up again. I got off the plane in Nigeria. 
I'm walking down the street with my brothers. And some young man, he had to be in his 20s, about six foot one, slim, look like you, my brother. Um, he's about 18, 20, 21. And the old man was chasing him. And when the old man was chasing him, the young man started chasing him too. They grabbed him and caught him in the middle of the road. We walking down the street to the market. I'm like, man, what's going on? And one of the old men got a switch. Start whooping that boy tail. I said, man, I'm back in West Oakland again. <laughs> Start whipping that boy tail. And can I tell you something? He sat there and took it. Grown man sat there and took it. You ready? Denzel Washington says, oh, good. He won't have to get that in jail. So Denzel has, has stepped up to the plate and talked about the problem in our communities is the absence of fathers. He's totally right. Even though he's swimming in that woke culture, him and one or two others have stood up and said the only, only reason that there's any semblance of hope is because of fathers in the home. Absolutely right. So you know a biblical world model is straight. So one of the intrinsic qualities of men is bravery. That has to be instilled as a, as, as a youth, though. Bravery and love and sacrifice. That doesn't mean that women aren't brave, too. They are, totally. You guys already know that. You know, Esther and others. Mary is brave to bear the controversial son of God for nine months, especially when those dagger cloak-wearing Pharisees were around. You saw what they did with the woman caught in adultery. They want to kill her on, in Sunday school. These are supposed to be saved folk. They want to kill her in Sunday school. Jesus said, you better let her go. And they did. Man, that brother, the Lord Jesus is brave, right? I call him a hero. The moment that men start rising up again, our government is going to go into level six psyop to deceive you. And then a battle will be on, and then we will recover our nation. And it will be because our women have prayed for us and not prayed on us. Because they're praying on the kids to turn them into women now. That's ungodly women. That's the, that's the feminist movement, the outcome of the feminist movement. Do you guys get that? I know that, and we understand that. Godly women know it's important to have godly men. And uh, it only takes a few to turn any community around. It only takes a few. So pray for that to happen because it could happen. And then in terms of uh, just being industrious and, 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 uh, and, and uh, visionary in terms of resources and stuff like that, that was the second part of our men's outline that we never got to because our men's study was packed and blessed. But it was meant for us to see the model of Christ as a biblical masculine man. But I didn't get into the need for us to understand how to manage our money and how to understand resources and how to understand how to pivot and actually know how to be flexible and, and actually uh, adaptable in our culture when the pressure comes down. But we're going to have to do that. Ladies and gentlemen, every culture in here, and I'm looking, it's, you know, it's a few of us, every culture in here has had to go through those adaptability processes to survive. Every one of these, every one of us in this room, Latinos, blacks, Asians, Indians, we have all had to do that. We've all had to do that to survive. Okay, so we're probably going to have to do it again. All right, again, I'm going to stop right there. Uh, if all the mics are up, that'll be great. Um, oh, did my brother have a question?
Yeah, you're, you're a visitor, you are free. <laughs> okay, thank you, Pastor. Yes. Um, but yeah, you, uh, just to touch on the bullying aspect, I think they always put out what they're going to do so we don't do it because the bullying, there was a bully, bullying policy in the public schools. Don't bully. So in any case, my question was more uh, basic, uh, biblical, was uh, Adam and Eve, were they, were they spirits in the garden? Um, the concept of them putting on fig leaves, uh, if they were spirits, the fruit trees, did they really eat the fruit? Was it, was it real fruit? The question you're asking is at the um, at the theological level, is the word of God literal or metaphysical or is it merely symbolic? That's at the root of that question. It's at the root of that question. And being that it's at the root of that question, if one were to follow through the logic of Adam and Eve merely being symbolic of something at a more spiritual level, which are positions that uh, non-biblical religious groups take, a lot of your groups take these non-biblical approaches at them and purely see them as symbolic. So as to not have to obligate ourselves to an epistemological framework of origin and creation of species. This, that way you can kind of hold to the Bible being more of a symbolic book than a historical narrative of real chronological events and thus mil- mil- mitigate against the evolutionary paradigm that's going on in our cultures. And in many of our religious uh, societies, they, they believe in a poly origin of human beings. That is many, many human beings being at the beginning, not just one, not just Adam and Eve. The reason I bring this up is because all of this is inherent in the, uh, the query of our friend. And if I were to um, say no to him in all of his questions, no, the tree is not merely symbolic. No, Adam is not merely a kind of metaphor or some, some symbolic uh, representation of the male species. And the same would be with, uh, with Eve. And therefore, no, it is not true that they only ate symbolically. I would be saying to you that it is first true that everything that happened literally is plausible. There is no scientific or uh, logical uh, framework by which one could refute the literal historical narrative. There's no framework. There's n- nobody's arguing that with any serious vigor. They are pushing the maybe the ludicrousy of it or the um, irrationality of it, uh, of, a, of a literal Adam and Eve and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They may be arguing the the um, the, the lack of a uh, plausibility of it, but they're not saying carte blanche that it didn't exist because it would completely destroy the integrity of scripture. At what point, if Adam and Eve were merely symbolic, does human beings become real? Is, is therefore Cain and Abel only symbolic? Is, you know, Lamech, Methuselah, and, and Enoch, are they only symbolic? Is Noah and his eight souls only symbolic? Is Abraham only symbolic? Do you see that the syllogism would play itself out to the point where Jesus is only symbolic? 
You see what I'm getting at, ladies and gentlemen? This is where principles of logic come in and are really critical. This is where the Protestant church was able to overcome the Babylonian mystery religion of Catholicism because Catholicism doesn't believe the Bible and it doesn't believe that Christ is the only way. It believes all ways lead to, to Rome, metaphorically speaking. So I would love to expand more fully on why the both and is my answer. It's both literal and highly symbolic, highly representative, highly redemptive. It has to be because your Bible is set up to be prophetic of realities that follow out of those events uh, and lead to its culmination in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is not a real man that was born of the Virgin Mary in a shadow of oversight by the Spirit of God inexplicably in a way in which we can't explain if he didn't live a sinless, holy life impeccably, uh, knew no sin, did no sin, and him was no sin at all. If he also was not in his hypostases, both God and man, then when he died on the cross, his death on the cross was completely in vain. And there is no reason for us to trust him as the vicarious, substitutionary, redemptive savior of all humanity in him. We wouldn't have any reason to believe that his merits and his person has the capacity to save all of us if it wasn't a real thing. Did that follow you guys? As difficult as it is. And so holding intention to two is really important. Holding the trans... Uh, metaphorical, symbolic, redemptive connotations that come up out of the scriptures because we are talking about earthly things representing spiritual things. And at the highest level of spiritual things, we're talking about God and his infinitude and his impenetrable nature only revealing himself to us in part by the temporal things that we are used to on the earth is the reason why I, I constantly am saying to us, we only know in part. There's a humility that has to remain with us being uh, convicted about what the Bible says are historical, factual things. Does that make some sense, my brother? So if we walk with humility in our retaining the epistemological certainty that Adam and Eve were real and humanity proceeded from them, which is echoed all the way through the Bible, not only by Jesus, but the apostles as well. So like all these dudes couldn't have bought into a fairy tale uh, throughout those thousands of years of history up to to the uh, New Testament age and um, and be wrong um, or else we would have easily proven that out by now because we can prove that with other writings that they have levels of fallibility and contradictions that can't be overcome. But in this particular case, two things. We believe it is true. We understand this transcendent meaning like I could go into the meaning of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is more than a literal tree. It's, it's much more symbolic of mankind trying to obtain a certainty of knowledge apart from a relationship with God. Right. That's that's easy to do. And, and we would argue that his quest for that can only really be summed up in the tree of life that's represented in the person of Jesus, right? We, we know that too. So this is how we argue as Christians, Jesus is the answer to our dilemmas, right? Because of his hypostases, being God and man. That, that being true, we just have to wrestle humbly to be able to set forth our argument. And then here's the other part, we're done. Uh, when you listen to other people's arguments, you will come to find out that their arguments certainly are no better 
and in many cases, ridiculously worse when it comes to origin, purpose, teleos, um, destiny. You go, ah, that's certainly a myth. It doesn't have any historical validity uh, of any real significance. There are major obvious exaggerations in many of the tomes and writings of the other religious systems that makes it very implausible for us to hold to as a coherent system of propositional truth by which we would base our, our life and hope. I hope that, that that made some sense to you guys. But we could always have more talk about it, and I hope the Christian church remains humble and open for this kind of this kind of talk. Because if I was talking with my Muslim brothers, we would be having the same kind of conversation around where we agree and where we disagree. And we would be doing that with other systems as well. Because that's the way Christianity was in the first century, all the way up until the party spirit came. I'll talk about it next week with, with King Charlemagne. All right, Father, thank you for your mercy and thank you for the saints being hungry enough to stay and uh, have these conversations. May this be the hunger and desire and passion of people of God around the world. And, and even the things we are preparing and, and anticipating and, and envisioning, the visions you give us that we are seeking to implement for us, our children, our children's children. May we all be persuaded that, um, that you are on the throne and that even though the ride may be difficult, we win with you in the end. Give us traveling mercies and help us to prepare to celebrate with our sister Pam tomorrow. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.